0: 네. Yeah.
1: Uh, Welcome. Thank you for coming to today's Best of uh, JNEB webinar. Um, We will be getting started here in
2: just a few minutes. I forgot to ask, what's the turnout like usually for these?
0: Paul, do you have those numbers? Uh
1: usually uh usually around uh 20 to 30 people live, just depending on the week. Um, and then obviously more people uh watching recordings afterwards. Okay. Great, thanks. Board, um, real- Thank you all for attending yeah. today's Best of GMEB webinar. Yeah. We'll get so, started yeah, here uh, in just a couple of hours. On the email list Hello everyone. Uh, my name is Paul Bierman. Uh, I work on SNEB staff as the Director of Education and Events, uh, and I'm happy to welcome you to today's Journal of Nutrition, Education and Behavior Journal Club webinar. Uh, this is the third webinar in a series of 10 webinars celebrating the best of JNEB, including the best article and best research brief uh, along with those finalists and other high impact articles. As the official peer-reviewed journal of the Society for Nutrition, Education, and Behavior, JNEB advances nutrition education and behavior-related research, practice, and policy. Uh, Before we begin with today's webinar, I'd like to review just a few key pieces of information. First of all, for those of you uh, joining us live over Zoom, captions are available. Uh, You can access those at the bottom of your screen from that Zoom toolbar. Uh, Once I get done talking here, I will place the handout in the chat so you'll have access to that. Uh, That will also be made available to folks who are uh, watching the recording. At the end of the presentation, we will take questions throughout the presentation. Please feel free to type any questions that you have into the chat or the Q&A function and uh, we'll get those asked for you. When the webinar ends today, you will be prompted with a short survey. Please do take a moment to complete that survey as your feedback is greatly appreciated for uh, planning purposes. Uh, as I alluded to, this webinar is being recorded and will be available free of charge to SDB members uh, in the webinar section of the website. Finally, watch for a follow up email to be sent in the next few days, which will include a link to this recording. The slide handouts and your CEU certificate for your attendance oh, yeah. today. With that being said, I'll now hand things over to our moderator, Dr. Kristen Nicole DiFilippo, teaching assistant professor at the University of Illinois. Kristen?
0: Thank you, Paul. Today I get to introduce our speaker. Uh, Mike Burke is a senior research analyst at USDA's Food and Nutrition Service. His research focuses on the Supplemental Nutrition Assistant Program, household food insecurity, and food pantries. He received a PhD from the University of South Carolina in health promotion, education, and behavior, and an MPH from the University of South Florida in community health. Really appreciate him sharing his paper with us today. If you have any questions, uh, please go ahead. While, you, you can enter them while he's speaking, and I'll read them out to him at the end. You can put those in the Q&A section, which is in the Zoom tool. tool bar. At this point, I can hand it over to Dr. Burke.
2: All right. Thank you very much. I'm going to share my screen. All right. Well, thank you everyone for joining us today. I'm really happy to be speaking to you all and I'm very honored to have um, our article as uh, one of the finalists for the best research brief. So uh, the talk of my the title of my talk today is policy systems and environmental change strategies and and SNAP Ed. So first, just a couple disclosures uh, that I have to I have to read these. So the findings and conclusions in this presentation are the are those of the authors and should not be construed to represent any U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, office or U.S. government determination or policy. And I don't have any actual or potential conflicts of interest in relation to this presentation. Um, These are the competencies today that we'll be covering. Um, I'll leave them there for just a second. All right, so um, in today's talk, I'm going to kind of start at a a high level. and then I'm going to hone down into SNAP-Ed and, and the PSEs. But I wanted to give um, everyone kind of a high-level summary of, of where I work, what we do, and so that you have some better context. So I work for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. We're a federal agency tasked with addressing farming, forestry, rural, economic development, and food. So we're a pretty far-reaching agency. We cover a lot of different topics. Uh, there's actually 29 agencies, and there's 100,000 uh, USDA employees. And- we're all over the U.S. and actually all over the world because we have a foreign agricultural service. Um, so for example, we have a lot of folks who work in forestry, fighting fires and doing other USDA things related to maintaining forests. We also, of course, work with farmers. We have a really large role economic development. And then the area that I uh, work in is food and nutrition assistance. Um, the Farm Bill is our centerpiece legislation. You, you might've heard it in the news recently um they're currently getting it ready to go into congress and hashing out the details but that's really one of the major bills that um, uh, gives us money and regulates what we do so of those 29 agencies i work at one of them the food nutrition service or fns and so um we're an agency that administers 15 federal nutrition assistance programs. So there's quite a few. Um, many of them are small, but some of them are very, very large. Um, we consume about 80% of USDA's budget, and that's per- that's due to SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which I'm going to be talking a lot about. So um, SNAP takes up a lot of the USDA's budget because there's so many benefits distributed to participants. Um, but we also house the Center for Nutrition Policy and Promotion, or CNPP. Um, and these are the folks that help develop and um do a lot of the science around the dietary guidelines, and so we work with them quite a bit in my office, and I just wanted to give them a little bit of a shout out because it is relevant to the JNEB office, um, or ex- excuse me, it's relevant to the JNEB audience, and we work with them quite a bit. So, um, so I mentioned that we have a lot of nutrition assistance programs, 15 um, and by far the largest is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, formerly known as food stamps. Um, still, uh, food stamps, it, you know, people still call it that. But by and large, I mean, at the federal level, it's known as SNAP. But obviously, when you get down into the community, a lot of folks um, call it food stamps. Um, but we also, so this is by far the biggest one, but we also do a lot of other very well-known programs that you may have heard of or even participated in. Um, the National School Lunch Program, the School Breakfast Program, the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants and Children or WIC is another very popular one in the j audience. Uh, a lot of research gets done on that program. And so all of these programs are within the Food Nutrition Service where we, uh, we administer and regulate those programs at the federal level. So we work closely with the states. Uh, And I focus particularly on SNAP. Uh, And I work in, in essence, the research arm of the Food Nutrition Service, where I do um, analysis and evaluation on SNAP. And like I mentioned, it's by far the largest nutrition assistance program. And it's actually one of it's a it's a critical strand in the social safety net in the United States. Um, SNAP provides a lot of benefits. Uh, there's not a ton of limitations on who can um, apply and participate. And so um, it has a very far reach in the US. And with cash assistance like TANF not as prominent as it once was, SNAP has really stepped in um, to help low-income families get the food they need and also help make ends meet. Um, And so SNAP benefits come on what's called an electronic benefits transfer card or an EBT card. You may have seen these, you know, in the windows of stores, EBT accepted here. Um, And so a lot of people also call it EBT. We've heard, you know, food stamps, EBT. Um, But one thing is... uh, So TANF can actually go on EBT cards too, so that's one thing to keep in mind. Um, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, the Cash Assistance Welfare Program in the United States. One thing I also want to say about SNAP that I think is really critically important is that you really must be low income to participate. This is a program targeting low income households. So gross income, meaning before any taxes or deductions, uh, it has to be less than 130% of the federal poverty line. Um, and some states have a little bit higher, you know, it can go up to 180, even 200% of the federal poverty line. But at the end of the day, that family after deductions that some deductions at SNAP can account for like excess shelter, um, some healthcare costs. You still have to be under a hundred percent net of the federal poverty line. So your net income after deductions and taxes and all that has to be under 100%. So we're talking about low income fam- families in poverty. And actually the the average income of SNAP households is below the poverty line. So we we really are talking about low income households that are struggling to make ends meet. Sometimes, you know, in the media and other places that narrative gets lost or small examples get blown out of proportion, but um Um, By and large, you got to be low income to participate in SNAP. And that's. And I'm going to talk a little bit more how that relates to SNAP-Ed in a minute. So just to give you kind of an idea of how big of a program this is. So in fiscal year 22, over 41 million uh, people participated in SNAP and they received $230 in benefits per person per month. And um, when you think about all of those costs, you add them up. You also add up. Um, the cost of administrating the program, it's about $119 billion in fiscal year 22. Um, one thing with SNAP is not only does the federal government provide all of the, it covers the cost of benefits to, to individuals and households, but we also cover 50% of the administrative costs. So whatever it costs the state to actually administer the benefits and run the program, we cover 50% of that at the federal level, and the states cover the other 50%. Um, snap is very responsive to economic cycles such as times as such of such in times as high unemployment so for example during covid when we saw high rates of unemployment um, we also saw uh, snap uh, participation go up along with it and we've seen this in the past too for example in the great recession in 2008 9 10 when Unemployment went very high. We also saw rates of SNAP participation go up. And they and they also go back down. So we like to think that SNAP is very responsive to helping um to helping low-income families get the food they need when times are tough in the broader economy. Um, There are a few other aspects of SNAP that I wanted to mention. Um, So SNAP lifts 2.8 million people out of poverty. And so, um, you know, it's really, like I said, it's a very critical strand in the social safety net. A lot of families rely on it to help make men's eat, uh, ends meet. Um, It reduces food insecurity. So, you know, the thing with SNAP is people get benefits on that EBT card. They can go to authorized uh, retailers and buy food. Um, And so, when they're able to do that, that's going to reduce food insecurity because food insecurity is by and large, um, you know, caused by folks who don't have enough economic resources to get the foods that they need. So SNAP really helps with that. We have a wide body of research that shows it over and over again that that it reduces food insecurity. It also importantly, in thinking about our rural communities, it increases access to stores with healthy foods. Um, so, Uh, in order for a retailer to participate in SNAP, uh, they have to meet certain um, guidelines about the foods that they need to stock. So they have to have a certain amount of fruits and vegetables, a certain amount of products that are whole grain and meet sodium targets and things like that. So um, in order to accept SNAP, these stores have to meet those guidelines. And so that means that in rural areas, you can think of corner stores, gas station, things like that, um, that that accepts SNAP, they also have to have access. They have to provide healthy food so people have access to those foods. So it can be, it can really help um, increase access to healthy foods in rural areas. Um, and SNAP also has a considerable employment and training program, SNAP ENT. So next, I'm going to be talking about SNAP Ed, but I also wanted to talk about uh, SNAP ENT just to shout it out because this is another arm of SNAP that helps people, um, you know get jobs and keep jobs, and it helps pay for things like community college, training programs, help with resumes, finding jobs. Um, you know, when SNAP-ENT is working well, it can make a really big difference in people's lives. Um, and so that's just something I wanted to mention because it's kind of the the we have SNAP-ENT and then we have SNAP-ED. So SNAP-ED is a nutrition education and obesity prevention component of SNAP. and. I copied and pasted the goal statement because I think it's really important and I think it summarizes really nicely what why what is, what's the goal of SNAP-Ed. And so that's to improve the likelihood that persons eligible for SNAP will make healthy food choices within a limited budget and choose physically active lifestyles consistent with the current dietary guidelines for Americans. And so there's a few things I wanna hone in, in there. Improve the likelihood, right? We're trying to help people and populations make better decisions. It's not guaranteed. Um, It's available to people who are eligible for SNAP, not just SNAP participants. And we recognize that these folks have a limited budget and it's difficult to make healthy decisions in a limited budget. Um, And also that the physical activity is important too. It goes hand in hand hand with improving nutrition. You need to also um, improve physical activity so we can um, get our, or BCD rates under control. All right. So like I said, one misperception about SNAP-Ed is that it's only available to those participating in SNAP. And that's actually not true. It's available to all low-income households and populations. And so the reason why that's done is because often SNAP-Ed is administered to community or groups of people, or you know, like we're gonna talk about in PSE settings. And it's not really feasible, efficient or practical to say, like, for example, if you go into a classroom that's in a low income neighborhood, you go into an elementary classroom, not all the kids are going to be eligible for SNAP. So it doesn't make sense to be like, okay, we're going to separate the kids that are eligible for SNAP and those who aren't, and we're going to administer SNAP to ju- SNAP-Ed just to those kids who are eligible. That doesn't make sense. There's all kinds of problems with that, like stigma, the practicality of it. So we we allow SNAP-Ed to be delivered to uh, low-income populations that may or may not include some higher-income folks. Uh, but to streamline things, that's how we do it. And we have some guidelines. So for example, the school has to be in a low-income area and things like that. Um, like I mentioned, Snap Ed is funded by FNS, but it's administered by the state. So we provide um the money. And I think recently the it's around north of $420 or $30 million um, that we provide uh, to the whole across all states. And there's a formula for deciding how much each state each state gets, Um, and so it's quite a bit of money. It's the largest nutrition education program in the United States. Um, And once the states get the money, they so the program's actually delivered by what we call implementing Agencies And so these there can be multiple implementing agencies in a state. Um, Some states just have one. Some states have a lot. But these are the groups or the agencies that are actually delivering SNAP-Ed on the ground. So SNAP-Ed is typically delivered, even though it's funded at the federal level, the money goes to the state and then it goes down into the community. So it's really a community. It's delivered at a community level, um, which is really important for targeting. So. Why do we even need SNAP-Ed? Why why is it important? Um, So this graph is from some work that I did at the Food Nutrition Service, where we use NHANES, a large survey um, that tries to capture the nutrition and health status of Americans. Um, And this what you're looking at are HEI scores. And so you can see the first thing, HEI scores range from from 0 to 100. We're all doing pretty poorly. Uh, and low income um, folks in particular are doing um, worse off than higher income. But overall, uh, our diet is not great. Um, and when we hone in, especially on adults, uh, we see that SNAP participants and other income eligible non-participants are are doing considerably worse than uh, our than the higher income non-participants. So that's this is just to say that there's a lot of work to do in improving the diets of the US population in general, but especially among low income populations. So SNAP-Ed um, is delivered in quite a few ways. Uh, we like to think of it, or I like to think of it, as kind of a three, three main ways that SNAP-Ed is delivered. So there's a the traditional approach, which is direct nutrition education. So you can think of folks, a uh, nutrition educator going into a, a community classroom and delivering um, a nutrition education directly to a group of folks. And, you know, that that's how it, that's still done like that um, in SNAP-Ed. It's been the way we've thought about nutrition education um, for a long time. Um, and there's a lot of good things about that. Um, another, another way of doing it is social marketing and SNAP-Ed. So these are, in essence, trying to um, saturate an area with positive messages through social media, billboards, bus wraps, encouraging healthy behaviors, encouraging better nutri- nutrition, uh, physical activity. And this can be really, really varied. Um, social media is a big one. Uh, billboards, bus wraps, Um you know, you, you, people get really creative when how they do social marketing campaigns. And then what I'm going to be focusing on for the rest of today's talk um, and really has become the focal point of SNAP-Ed are policy systems and environmental changes or what I'll refer to as PSEs. So PSEs were first emphasized in SNAP-Ed in legislation passed in 2010. The Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act um, encouraged uh, or didn't encourage. It actually um, requires states to take uh, and the federal government to take public health approaches to improving nutrition. Um, And really, that was a catalyst for uh, incorporating PSEs more broadly and more fully into SNAP-Ed. and so that legislation was passed in 2010, um, but things didn't really start ramping up with PSEs until 2014-ish uh, when FNS put out guidance about how states should be operationalizing the, the what the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act required. And so the overall goal of PSEs seek to make higher level or public health changes to influence behaviors or groups of, of or populations. So the idea here is we're not, we're not focusing so much on that direct education one-to-one or one-to-ten or whatever, we're really thinking about ways that we can make a, a bigger impact on the biggest group of people. Um, and, and so PSEs are always concerned about that. Um, they're relatively new uh, and emerging in nutrition ed. I mean, that kind of sounds funny because they've been around for a while, but in comparison to traditional nutrition education and social marketing, they still, it, PSEs are still the new kid on the block. Although, you know, obviously now we have a, we have a solid, you know, decade plus of experience with, with PSEs. So they're by no means new, uh, but they are relatively new compared to traditional um, nutrition education. So I wanted to give a few concrete examples of PSEs to help help us think about how they can be used in Snap and a lot of these examples are can, are from Snap So when we think about policy changes, these are things that there's 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 an action taken to regulate or change the policy of an organization, a community, or whatever. Um, but some kind of some kind of regulation is passed. Um, to change the way things are done officially. And so you can imagine at a school, one very popular one is prohibiting vending machines in a low-income school from serving sugar-sweetened drinks and with the goal of improving dietary quality of low-income kids. Um, another one uh, that's in a different realm in the community is requiring that local parks have safe clean and easily accessible water fountains for for all to uh, enjoy um, another one is requiring that schools have learning gardens for for students and so the key with the policy changes is that these are all explicit and they usually you know must be followed it's 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 something that an organization is deciding this is the new way we're doing things and this is our new policy, Um, which that's in contrast to systems changes. So oftentimes system changes can look a lot like policy changes, but the difference is systems changes are often not absolutely required. There's no higher body that's necessarily saying we passed this regulation or law or whatever, and you have to do things now. Systems changes are more about maybe just changing the way we usually do things. So for example, um, a food bank, maybe before they were just getting food from wherever, um, and they were trying to incorporate, their goal was to try and incorporate more fresh produce. And so they realized, oh, well, you know what, there's some local farmers in, the, in our region that have a lot of excess food. Why don't we change the way that we get food and connect these farmers to our food bank and that way we can incorporate more fresh produce. And so that's just a way of changing how the food bank does things. It's not necessarily a policy change. There's nothing saying they have to do it, but maybe a savvy worker realized this and they just changed changed what they're doing. Um, Another systems change is local organizations partnering to provide nutrition assistance application help. So this is, again, this is just kind of maybe it comes up organically that these two local organizations um, realize that there's power in numbers. And if they partner together, um, they can help more people in their area get nutrition assistance. So it's not necessarily, you know, anyone saying they have to do it, but it's just a way of doing changing the way they do business. And Partnering is really big in Snap Ed, and it is a partnering in its in and of itself is is a PSE. And so um, Snap Ed really encourages strong partnerships in communities um, that way that they can leverage more expertise and resources and have a bigger impact and kind of break down those silos that that often get talked about in, in government and other organizations. Um, you know, another small example of school cafeterias procuring healthier options. You know, oftentimes. There isn't a policy. I mean, we have federal policy that describes, you know, the nutrition requirements of national school lunch program and the school school breakfast program. But maybe, you know, outside of that, or to improve it or make it even better, a school cafeteria manager realizes, hey, why don't we? Start procuring from this vendor, or you know, connect with these farmers and pro- procure food that way, and you know, serve some different healthier options. It's not really a policy change; it's just a way of they're changing the system, they're changing the way they do things. And then finally, um, environmental changes is one that I think is where, where a lot of us in public health are more familiar with. Um, So this is just changing the physical environment to encourage, you know, better um, dietary choices and increase physical activity. So, um, you know, one that's gotten a lot of attention is local convenience stores offering healthier foods at high visibility points. So, for example, SNAP-Ed can partner with organizations and work with um, stores in an area to, you know, put end caps that have, you know, Um, fruits and vegetables at eye level that way, you know, instead of other unhealthy snacks Um, or putting down footprints to where, to putting, putting down footprints to where fruits and vegetables are and things like that. Um, You know, changing the environment in that store to encourage healthy behaviors. Um, Establishing a community park that encourages physical activity. So um, for example, I was just at a park this weekend with my daughter and, you know, they, they, There was a really nice kids park that had um, all kinds of obviously physical activity, but then right next to it they had this pretty new-ish looking um, adult area that had um, you know exercise machines appropriate for outside that adults could use, and it was nice. You know, like kids were playing in the playground, some adults were cycling, watching their kids, and you know using machines as they're watching their kids. So that's changing the 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 physical environment to encourage healthy behavior. You know, and also also got a lot of attention, changing the light of school cafeterias to put healthier options within the reach of kids. Um, So those are some examples of PSEs, um, but it's not all roses. Um, So, you know, PSEs are really challenging to implement and to evaluate Um, just in general. They often take longer to establish and to deliver than nutrition ed. You know, you can think of traditional nutrition ed going, you know, one um, registered dietitian going into a class, delivering delivering um, some nutrition education, to kids or adults or whatever. Um, or with social marketing, it can be very straightforward too. You know, you pay for an ad and you put the ad up and it's just there. PSEs are a lot more challenging, in my opinion, because like I said, or like some of those examples, you have to change policy. You have to partner with people. You have to change physical environments. You have to, you know, encourage people to think about different ways of doing things. And so that just takes more time and energy. Um, So in order to get that set up, um, you know, you, you need staff that have specific skills, that understand, you know, understand how policy changes work and systems changes and, you know, partnering and creating those long lasting partnerships. Um, And it's just I, you know, I think it's just in general a little bit harder, but doable. I mean, folks are doing it every day. I'm sure many of you are uh, doing it right now. Um, And the other thing, too, is that it's a little harder to see results that a lot of policymakers or people who hold money want to see. and so, for example, you know, with traditional ed, you, you know, there's other federal programs too, like FNAP, where, you know, you, you do a pretest, you deliver some direct nutrition ed, you do a post-test, and you can literally see the difference in like an HEI, healthy eating index score, whatever, nutrition knowledge. But that doesn't translate as well with PSEs, right? Um, we often don't have individual level dietary intake. And so it's really, um, you know, thinking about shifting the what, what does success look like with the PSE? Um, so for example, if, if I told you, well, we had, um, you know, a school district where there are 20 schools, none of them had school gardens, but after, you know, partnering and procuring all the resources and grants or whatever, and with the help of SNAP-Ed, SNAP-Ed, we got 14 of those 20 schools to implement a garden. So that's a really important metric um, that doesn't necessarily have dietary intake differences. Um, but we know that 14 schools didn't have a garden and now they do. And that's an important, an important um, you know, evaluation outcome that kind of changing the way we think about what does success look like in terms of nutrition education with PSEs. Another example is you know, you're working with those stores and you want to see, okay, we did all this. We put new end caps in, we put all kinds of signage. Is that actually making a difference? Well, you can, you can work with the store to see if they had increased sales in, in fruits and vegetables during that time. Um, But you won't necessarily get that, you know, direct, okay, people, people are consuming more fruits and vegetables, um, you know, because you won't necessarily collect that data because it's difficult and like i mentioned it's you know really requires strong partnerships and um snap-ed at the federal level recognizes that and we really do support and encourage it and then with pscs too you know it's not to say i don't ever want to be construed as saying that traditional snap-ed or social marketing is is not that important or you know that's the old stuff no um traditional Uh, nutrition education, social marketing, PSEs, we really are concerned with this synergy uh, effect. Um, And the goal is really to have encompassing interventions. You know, we want to ensure in SNAP-Ed that this money is going to creating, you know, environments or places where people live, work, eat, play, worship, that they have access to direct education. They're seeing social marketing um, in their area, that's encouraging healthy behaviors. When they go into their store or local park, those environments are changed by some of the PSE strategies. Um, and we we are we want that synergistic effect because we know we live in an obesogenic environment where there's tons of bad decisions around us all the time. And so the idea is with nutrition, direct ed, social marketing, and PSEs, we can start to change and push back against that environment. Um, and so, uh, at the same time, you know, PSEs have a higher likelihood of making that broader impact. But, like I said, it can be difficult to prove exactly uh, at the individual level. So, we also like to see individual results from things like traditional SNAP education, uh, nutrition education. Um, and finally, you know, we at FNS we encourage diverse approaches. The focus really has been on PSEs because that is the new uh, way of. Um, you know, that's that's the new kid on the block, the new way of doing things. And so, you know, it obviously is going to require more attention and and, and training to get um, folks up to speed. But, um, you know, we want to see diverse uh, approaches to nutrition education. So from the paper I published um, in in JNEB, so we, you know, we use data. This was the first time that that this had ever been looked at. It's kind of getting old now. You know, we use data from 2014 to 2016, uh, but but it actually is the newest data we have because the data are so hard to um, analyze. And so in essence, without going into too much of the detail, because it's all in the article, what we did was we took um, SNAP-Ed annual plans um, and reports, which all states are required to submit to FNS, and we did some qualitative coding and, and um, some content analysis. And we basically wanted to answer the questions, what's going on with PSEs in this initial rollout period between 2014 and 16. Um, And so what we saw was really encouraging. The percentage of states that included PSEs as a statewide goal increased to almost 50% of, you know, 25 to 50% nearly. And that's really important because um, you know, when you have a goal that, you, you know, PSEs are part of your SNAP-Ed goal. That's really important. It drives a lot of the work you do. It's not required. A lot of states did this on their own. We suspect it's higher now, um, but even in the fact by 2016, it was half of states we thought was, was very promising and encouraging. Um, you know, almost all states by 2016 were incorporating at least one PSE, um, which is great. Um, Again, we suspect it's much higher now. And then um, among states that plan to implement PSEs in 2016, uh, the three most common settings were places in which people learn. So this is mostly schools, but it doesn't have like uh, elementary, middle schools. It doesn't have to be. It can be other types of schools, too, like community colleges, Uh, places where people live. So this is like community. You can think about the parks. um, the parks examples that I gave, and then places where people work. So Snap Ed also can work in work uh, can be implemented in workplaces. and it's actually quite common. Uh, and the article lists is, lists out other um, areas where Snap Ed is commonly um, um, implemented. And I should say that we also have now, so kind of the old way of doing it was all through PDFs, Pay, you know, states are literally submitting to us PDFs um, of their plans and reports. And although it, it works, I mean, it's just really hard to um, get data from that to understand what's going uh, on across the country. Um, hence why we only did it one time between 2014 and 16. But the good news is um, now we have a digital online system for reporting a lot of SNAP-Ed um, plans and outcomes, and it's it's called N-Pairs. Um, and so it's new. Uh, states are just doing it for the first time, but we're hoping, you know, in a few years we're going to be able to much more rapidly um, understand what's going on across all of the United States and pull out some of these stats in a more timely manner. Um, so you might be thinking, um, wow, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> um, and how the heck does how 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 can someone at an implementing agency um you know take all this information, do direct ed, social marketing, PSEs? So um quite a few years ago, we we went down this path and we understood this that you know states and implementers and we as the federal government need to have a better way of thinking about um a better way of thinking about doing this systematically. And so we came up with the SNAP ed evaluation framework. Um, and so I'm not going to go into too much detail, but it's a way of thinking about um all how Snap Ed can reach the various aspects of people's lives. And so we we, you know, this is a very public health approach. We have the individual level, we have environmental settings, we have sectors of influence, and then um Within each of those, we have, you know, the columns are, okay, you know, are these, there's there are goals, uh, or within each, there are short-term, so, you know, getting organizations ready and building capacity, and then the middle column is, you know, actually doing the changes, what we call medium-term, and then once those have been established, we, we have effectiveness um, and maintenance. And so the whole goal of this is to give people, in essence, a framework. Um, and all the way to the right of the screen, the population results, um, the, you know, what we're trying to target here, these are these are what SnapEd is ultimately trying to improve, like overall diet quality, increase in fruits and vegetables, food security, uh, breastfeeding rates, and just overall quality of life. And so within each of these, you'll see that there are. A bunch of numbers and we picked out um quite a few and these are called priority indicators so for example in environmental settings organizational motivators we have st7 partnerships and so this is what we this is one of our priority indicators and so we are encouraging you know, states to really focus on building partnerships to meet those population results. Um, And then we have things like multi-sector partnerships and planning Uh, in in behavioral changes, we wanna focus on healthy eating, food resource management, physical activity. And these are optional for states, you know, they can choose to focus on these priority indicators. It's a way for us to try and, um, you know, have a lot of states moving generally in the same direction. And the other really neat thing about this, if you Google SNAP-Ed evaluation framework, we have a whole website where folks can go in and let's say you're interested in implementing a nutrition support intervention. You can actually look up MT5 nutrition supports and you can look at all of the evidence-based interventions that target nutrition supports and you can pick the one that works for you. And so it's really trying to encourage folks to think holistically, in a very structured way, and um, implement programs that are evidence-based and can be evaluated. So, um, if you're not familiar with it, I, you know, or you're looking for interventions for whatever line of work you're in, um, it's a really great resource. Just, I think it's a great public health resource, um, not just for SNAP-Ed. Um, so, I just wanted to end with a few closing thoughts. Um, so. You know, often I think in the general public, but even within public health community, uh, SNAP-ED isn't really that visible. Uh, A lot of folks don't really understand SNAP-ED, but it's a really important part of SNAP. And like I said, it's the nation's largest nutrition education program, so it's it's really important. And there's a lot of awesome work being done, innovative, awesome work being done all across the United States. Um, You know, PSEs are really, you know, one of the kind of the Cornerstone or centerpiece of Snap Ed. Not to say the others aren't um, important, but PSCs right now are kind of taking up, uh, you know, at least from my perspective, I think it's the, the you know one of the more promising areas of Snap Ed where I think we can really start to see big differences in um in the, in the impact of Snap Ed on people's lives. Um, and of course, you know, nutrition and food security are increasingly important under this administration, food. Food security and nutrition security have really um, been lifted up and elevated, and there's been, I think, that's great. And SNAP-ED fits really nicely into it. And as a matter of fact, you know, it's 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 really again kind of synergistic with with the goals of the administration and having nutrition security really um, a centerpiece of how we think about food insecurity and 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 nutrition in the United States. Um, and with that, I will open it up for questions. I'll leave my contact info here, and I'm happy to answer questions and have a discussion.
0: And thank you so much for sharing all about PSE and SNAP and SnapBed. Um, you know, it was a really great background to for all of us. And then, uh, nice to have the update on the most recent data. So, if you have any questions, you can put those either in the chat or in the question and answer box. Um, so go ahead and type those now. Uh, one question we have is: Can a state use SNAP funds to start a food pantry in a community, or would income requirements prevent this type of activity with those funds?
2: I will say I'm not. Pro- I'm probably not the best person to ask those kind of really specific programmatic uh, allowances. What I will say is that um, SNAP the money SNAP Ed funding um, is flexible. And my I guess my initial reaction is to that specific question about starting a food pantry is um, well, I don't want to say because I'm not sure, but let me give you an example. Like I don't think snap Ed can um, you can you can partner with organizations that are trying to to make that happen. Um, um, but if you want, if you want, for that specific question, I can, if you wanna email me, I can connect you with folks that can definitely answer that better than, than I can. Um, yeah. yeah, so I know that's not a great answer, but I can connect with that. <laughs> no,
0: definitely. that makes sense. Um, and then for the parks where they were adding adult areas as well, what advice would you give if someone would want to see that brought to their community? As to how could how could someone local make that happen in their local area?
2: Yeah, so again, I guess I would. So I don't, you know, depending on where you are, I would reach out to your local SNAP Ed office or implementing agency, um, and just start having a conversation um, because there there is um, there's money out there, and that money can be used to um, support. Uh, physical activity in low-income populations. Um, The details of exactly how that works is again, like not my area of expertise, Um, but, but I, you know, if you wanna email me, I'm happy to connect folks with our office here. But the first step I would do is reach out to your local implementing agency and start having that discussion.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And then Trinity said uh, SNAP-Ed funding could be used to provide technical assistance to those wanting to start a pantry, but funding cannot be used for food or infrastructure such as shelving or refrigeration. So that's input from one of our listeners.
2: That sounds right to me. I didn't want to say that explicitly because I wasn't 100% sure, but that's why, like, yeah, SNAP-Ed funds can be used for that kind of technical you know, thinking about how you actually do it and things like that, and and it can support that type of work. But there's restrictions on um, exactly like what the money can be used to purchase. So that, that does sound right to me.
0: Wonderful. So another question, has there been any changes to SNAP to enable those who are at the poverty threshold or borderline to have access to SNAP?
2: So there are quite a few you know, deductions, um, um, that, so the short answer is, is no. I mean, if you're over that, if you're over that threshold, you know, there is unfortunately that with the benefit cliff where, you know, if you're a dollar, or $10 over, you just don't get it. Um, but there are, you know, a lot of deductions that folks and in low income households can use like excess shelter, there's utility allowance, um, elderly households can deduct, um, um, healthcare costs. So there are a variety of ways that you can reduce your gross income um, to get as close as possible to, you know, to be eligible for SNAP. But unfortunately, if you're over that limit, um, you know, you're over and um, won't be eligible.
0: Well, thank you. I think that is all the questions we have at this time. I want to thank you for sharing. um this with us. And I know your paper's been, oh, it looks like we have another one. Um, So I'll go ahead and ask that one. What progress has been made in allowing college students to get access to SNAP?
2: Yeah. um, So this is a pretty uh, big topic, Um, just like food insecurity and college students is is another big topic that's receiving a lot of attention. Um, During the pandemic, you know, US FNS relaxed, USDA, Congress relaxed a lot of the um, uh, restrictions around college students um, and made it easier. But now those are, you know, phasing out. Um, and so we're kind of back to the old set of regulations. Um, and, you know, it is it is quite restrictive. I mean, traditionally, college students haven't really um, had access to SNAP. But that's not to say there are a lot of exemptions. So if you have a child under the age of six, I believe um, you can be eligible um, because I think a lot of the exemptions um, recognize that there are a lot of non-traditional college students now. They're actually quite a large percentage of of college students. And so there are ways um, that you can become eligible for SNAP if you're a college student going full-time. Like I said, if you have a kid, if you have some kind of disability, um, if you're working um, a certain amount of hours per week, but still eligible for SNAP. So there are ways um, that you you can still be eligible for SNAP, but it is kind of difficult. Um, and I don't know of any, um, you know, but I haven't looked into it. I don't know of any proposals to... to change those regulations, but that would be something like I said in the farm bill, but yeah, I'm interested. I don't know if there's anything on the table, if some organizations have suggested things or uh, members of Congress, but it is definitely important. And I do think, you know, um, you know, in terms of research, it's important to, to think about how SNAP can um, help low-income college students that are struggling because there are a lot.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to thank you again for sharing um, your work, and for answering all of our questions. Um, if I don't see any more questions come through, I think I can pass things back over to Paul.
1: Thank you, Kristen. Uh, and thank you to Mike as well for coming here and sharing your knowledge with us today. Uh, I just have a few reminders before I close out the session. Uh, please complete the survey that you'll receive after the session has completed. Uh, as I said before, your feedback is greatly appreciated. Be on the lookout for an email with today's recording, handouts, and your CEU certificate. Uh, If you enjoyed today's webinar, be sure to check out the upcoming webinar section of the website. Uh, Journal Club will be back here at uh, next Monday. And with all of that being said, that concludes today's session. Thank you for joining us and have a great day.